do me a favor and track down a Bible. We've got them in baskets down by your feet. And uh, get with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. It's on page 213 in the Bibles we have here, 213. And uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about Mother's Day and looking at a passage in Scripture that helps us to understand the desire both to be a mom and then what happens when that desire is fulfilled. Um, And so Hannah is a great example of that. And uh, we're going to learn some things about um, some, some desires that we should have as far as our parenting is concerned. Now, if you're in here going, great, like I'm not a mom, I don't ever want to be a mom, I, you know, whatever your story might be, um, there's more here than just principles for, for motherhood. And so I think we get to see here as well how God is at work in this world and what he's up to. Um, so uh, let's pray and we'll get to work. All right, God, we ask right now for your help. Um, I pray, God, that you would do something that I couldn't manufacture or produce. We pray, God, that your spirit would do what your spirit does, and and you would allow for us then to experience your presence here, that you are here with us, and that we could hear your voice, God, that you are speaking to each of us. And, And your desire, God, is that we would walk away changed individuals because we have come into the presence of the holy and living God. And so we just ask for for you, God, to make yourself known in these moments. Would you please speak and help us to hear your voice? And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. First thing I want you to see here is that God is pleased to use nobodies from nowhere to accomplish his purposes. We see here that God is able to use obscure, ordinary people who are broken people as the vehicle of his blessing. So look with me at verse 1 of 1 Samuel. It says, There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jerohom, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. Listen, guys, I hit play on the Bible app and listened to it like 50 times because I was like, I have no idea how to say any of these names, which is my point. When you look at this little list, it's telling you, it's kind of giving you a place marker of here's this guy and his family, and here's what you need to know about him, and all of us will read it and go, we have no idea who these people are, and I've never even heard of these people before, and I've read the Bible quite a few times. These people and these places are not something that quickly comes to mind, and I go, oh yeah, for sure, I'm aware of that place. This is an obscure family. This is an obscure family. I mean, how many Alcanas have you met in your life? Right? You've met a lot of Pauls and Johns and Elis and you know, Elijahs and different stuff, but I've not met an Elkanah. Now, maybe 2020 is the year of elk. You know, I think that's kind of cool. Elk, come on, dude. And your little boy runs up, but I've not met an elk yet. Um, but all these names and all these places, they feel very obscure to me, and it just reminds me that this is God's MO, that he uses people who are ordinary, and he uses people who are obscure. And he even uses broken people to accomplish his purposes. Um, I, went to, I went to school at Shoreland, uh, grade school, K through 8, and then I went to Hananiga High School in Roscoe, Illinois, and then I went to Rock Valley College. And while I was at Rock Valley, I did a, a job where I was a tutor here at Harlem High School. I was mentoring students here through a program, and, um, and then I became a youth pastor and got to work with teens from... Beloit and South Beloit and all these different areas. And one of the things, one of the themes that kind of runs throughout that experience is a lot of people, here's what I would hear them say, I can't wait to get out of here. I can't wait to go someplace significant. 
right? There's, a, there's this kind of undercurrent in our area that everyone's thinking, I can't wait to be somewhere else. Uh, you know, McChesney Park and so I can't wait to get out of here and go someplace else. And, and that's true in Sherland, and it's true in Rockton, and it's true in all these different places. But one of the things that I'm realizing is God is concerned with the ordinary places. Like, he notices where we come from, and he's not thinking, this is wasted material. He's not thinking, I can't wait to transplant all these people to an urban city center. I can't wait to get them someplace where they can do something famous. The truth is, God, throughout Scripture, over and over again, uses obscure, ordinary people as the vehicle of his blessing. And this family is no exception. They are ordinary people that God is going to use to bring about this incredible announcement of the leadership of God in these people. So, God is able to use obscure, ordinary people, but also people who are broken. If you look here, there's conflict within this family. And it doesn't take a scientist to figure this out. Look at verse 2. Elkanah had two wives. That's a problem, right? You're aware of that? Right? Right away, we recognize this is a bad plan. He has two wives, not one. And this is one of those situations where the Bible is describing something. It's not prescribing. It's not saying, hey guys, you know, if you, you want to take away from the sermon today, go get another wife. It's not doing that. This is contrary to God's design for marriage, but it's describing what happened. Elkanah had two wives, and one of the reasons might be that his first wife, Hannah, was unable to have children. And so in their culture, one of the things that they would do to preserve their family, marry another woman who could carry that family name along. And so he had two wives. One was called Hannah, the other Peninnah, Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. And then what happens is we find out that, in, that though this man is religious, his family is conflicted. Look at verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. And we're going to come back to them in just a minute, but we find out pretty quickly in 1 Samuel, these dudes are no good. The priests who are leading there are an example of poor parenting, and I'm going to get back to that. But this man uh, keeps going, Elkanah keeps going to Shiloh to worship the Lord, and verse 3 says, year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons, were. And whenever whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of his meat to his wife, Peninnah, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Which, by the way, guys, um, if you're trying to comfort your wife, you are not the answer. Um, as great as he, he might think he is, Elkanah is not the answer. So here's what's going on. We're being made aware. There's conflict in this family. That this family is, is a broken family. That there are two wives, and one of them is experiencing infertility, and the other one has children. And doing pastoral ministry for a number of years, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of how devastating infertility is. If you're a married couple and you're aspiring to be parents, there is something that is traumatic about wanting to have a child and being unable to conceive. And I've watched as healthy marriages have crumbled under the weight of that experience, that desiring to have children like Hannah, she is broken because she eagerly wants to have that baby in her arms. 
And she might even feel called to it and wondering then, God, why on earth can't I have a kid? Why on earth aren't you giving me this desire of my heart? It is a good desire. And yet she is unable to conceive. And, and, and that's hard in and of itself. But look what else is hard about it. Inside her family, there's an enemy. There's another woman who does have kids, and she is called a rival. They, the, this other woman has married her husband, and she has kids, and now there's conflict that's just right there. It's right in the family. And can you imagine how hard that would be? That the person who you dislike most, and they obviously dislike you, imagine them being in your household. Now, some of you guys get this. You're in conflict. You understand how important um, the Bible is about helping you navigate this thing because con conflict is so prevalent. I've heard it described before that the Bible is a book on conflict resolution. And it just helps us to know this is normal, that conflict is normal. And some of you guys, if you think about your life right now, you know this to be the case. And maybe the conflict is at your place of work. You have a rival there. And that rival doesn't like you. And so they're doing things to try to provoke you, to try to irritate you. And they smile when things don't go your way. And you understand that, that difficulty. Some of you, though, your rival isn't in your workforce. It's actually in your extended family. There are family members who you think about and you just you recognize right away as you think, as you pay attention to your heart. This person does not like me, and I do not like them, and the relationship is strained, and this is no fun. Right? And some of you, unfortunately, your rival is even closer. It's an immediate family member. It's a child or it's a significant other. And that person you are beginning to treat as an enemy, and you are seeing how devastating that can be as your relationship is disintegrating. And so we understand conflict, and what I'm trying to point out is that God uses ordinary, obscure people who are broken people who are in the midst of conflict to accomplish his purposes. If that's you this morning, it's, it's not game over for you. God is able to step in and do something about it. But real quick, before we move along to the prayer of Hannah, I want us to be careful that we don't only connect ourselves to Hannah and go, we're the victims. There's some bad guy out there that's causing me harm. Some of us need to acknowledge we're more like Peninnah in the story. That there are people that we look at and we don't like them and we want it to be known. And we do certain things. Our behavior, our actions, the way that we talk about them reveals that we treat them with contempt, that we don't like them, and everyone knows. And so we just have to be careful, because honestly, I know my own heart. I know, I know how I can gravitate in that direction toward hating an enemy and then doing something about it. We need to be gospel people who love well. So God uses obscure, ordinary, and broken people. And we see here then, as Hannah prays, we see a model of what it looks like when you are broken, when you are hurting, when your heart is longing for something and you, you're, you're having a hard time even imagining things ever getting better, what does it look like? Well, she shows us, here's what we need to do. We need to pray. Verse 9, once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. She is broken and in despair. And what does she do? She goes before the throne of God's grace and she begins to rehearse 
the language that she has heard in Scripture, that God is a God who is powerful. She says the Lord of the Lord of hosts. She's saying the captain of heaven's army, the one who directs all the host of angels. You have power, just like you've told us over and over again. You are powerful and you're able to do this. I'm not thinking about you, God, as incompetent or unable or un, you know, unwilling to do this. I recognize you are the Lord of hosts. You can do this. And so she's praying to him in that way. And she's then praying that he, along the same lines that she's heard throughout her her childhood, that God is the one who hears the cries of the afflicted. God is the one who hears when we experience broken, brokenness and we cry out to God, God tilts his ear toward us. He hears the, the cries of the afflicted. This is not some new information to her. She's simply rehearsing the promises and the character of God that she knows to be true. God, you are able to do something. And we need to pray in that way. That God, you are fully able to do something here. You see my brokenness, you see my pain, you see the longing of my heart, and you can do something here. She prays in that way. Now, one of the things that we need to recognize is is the importance of prayer here. We need to be people who, when we are broken, we go to God in prayer. Uh, I was meeting with with a young man uh, this week, and he's making some choices in his life. He was a former student in the youth group that I was leading, and so he was coming to me and he's saying, here's everything that's going on, and I'm feeling distant from God, and I'm trying to make some big decisions in life of what I need to do. What do you think? And I listened to him, and I was asking him questions, and, and then I just realized, here's the, here's the one thing that I can tell you to do with confidence. You need to pray. You need to go before God in your brokenness, in your desperation, and make it plain to God what is going on in your heart. He knows, but you need to actually express that. And, and this to him was kind of like, I don't know if I can do that because he was feeling so distant from God. In the moment of brokenness, there's this tendency in us to think God doesn't know what's going on with me or he doesn't care, but I don't know if I can go to him. I don't know if I could trust him with my life and with my pain. But what we need to do is to go directly to him and just acknowledge the brokenness that we're experiencing. God, you are the Lord of heaven's hosts, and you can do something, and here's what's going on with me, and you pour out your heart before him. Now, the, the priest, Eli, he is a bum, and when he hears and sees what's going on here, he kind of misdiagnoses the problem. So when I look at this, I go, oh, I get this guy. Like, yeah, I understand what it's like to look at somebody who's broken and to have no clue how to counsel them. So watch this. This is what happens. Verse 12, as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Eli is the priest there. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away the wine. He looks at this woman, and she is broken, and she's praying, and what does he do as this spiritual guru, this leader? He looks at her and he goes, oh, she's wasted. He looks at her and he goes, look, she's, she's in the temple drinking wine or drinking beer, doing whatever, but man, this is all messed up. And so he begins to try to correct her. Woman, what are you doing here? Okay, how long are you going to stay drunk? And he's totally missing the mark, isn't he? So I, I get that because some of you, you will sit with me and you'll tell me what's going on. You'll reveal your heart and I will totally misdiagnose what's going on. And uh, be patient with me then, right? Because I'm not the first one to do this. Eli has gone before me. Many spiritual people still miss the mark. There are moments where we want to pour our hearts out to other people 
and they don't even get it. It just goes right over their heads. But she's not drunk. Look at what she says in response. Verse 15, Not so, my Lord, Hannah said. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant as a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. She says, you, you're not getting it, Eli. Here's what's really going on. I'm a broken and hurting person. Don't call me a wicked woman. Don't sit here and scold me and tell me what I need to do differently because you don't understand. I'm praying out of the anguish of my soul that there is something that God has, is keeping from me and I feel broken and the pain and the hurt of the conflict in my household is too much to bear. And she says, don't call me a wicked woman. And here's what's interesting. As the story unfolds, here's what we find out. In chapter 2, what does it say about Eli's sons? When they're described, um, Hophni and Phinehas, the two children of Eli the priest, what does it say about them? They're wicked sons. And it's ironic then, because here's here's Eli scolding a woman. How dare you come into the temple and drink your booze here? And then what do we find out? Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are, are scoundrels. They, they are wicked individuals. And here's what the Bible goes on to say. This is all in chapter 2, if you want to read it for yourself. But it says, the reason why they are the way that they are is failed parenting. Eli has not taken responsibility to lead his family well. He's a priest. He's doing his thing. He's their priest too. They're in the temple. But man, he has not led them well, and they are wicked individuals. And so there's a contrast then that we're meant to pick up on, that there's an irony here. Eli is scolding a woman mistakenly when in fact he ought to be scolding his sons. He ought to be correcting them. And and we see then this difference, and especially as um, Hannah's going to have a child, and the child is really going to be an an example of faithfulness and fidelity to God, and, and we're supposed to see this huge difference. There's a world of difference between dedicating your child to the Lord and helping them to grow in their faith in God and in his promises and letting your kids do whatever they want. There's a world of difference. And guys, it really does matter. Failed parenting has significant effects on people. We're not talking about small things. We're talking about the difference between a faithful individual and somebody that the Bible very openly says they are wicked. And so we need to be careful then as parents that we would take on this challenge that we're being given. That if you're a parent, you have a responsibility to love your children well enough that you can correct them and love them and guide them to the Lord. So we see here an incredible blessing in verse 17. Um, It says, uh, Eli answered, go in peace and may the Lord, the God of Israel, grant what you have asked of him. The, the, The prophet Eli, he speaks over her and he says, May it be as you have requested. Now, isn't that awesome? May it be as you have requested. Now, I want you to just pause for a minute and ask yourself, if God were to answer your prayers this morning like that, may it be as you have asked, what would happen? If God were to look at you and say, I'm going to give you the desire of your heart. I'm going to give you everything that you are pouring out in anguish before me. I'm going to give you the desire of your heart. What would happen? I hope that we would be able to say with integrity, the kingdom of God advances. 
that revival comes, that, people, that, that the people that we care for would be uh, raised up in their understanding of God, that we would be discipling people, that people would be growing in their maturity. I hope that it doesn't just end with the selfish things that we want that we keep bringing before God. Hannah prays for us in a way that really is incredible. She is showing us what it looks like to make a petition before the Lord and to say, if I get this child, he will be yours. He will be yours. That's what she said in her prayer. She's saying, look, if I pray, I will dedicate this child to you. Isn't that wild? She's saying that the way that she's praying is that if you answer my prayer, it's not just going to be for my glory, it'll be for your glory. If you answer this prayer, the child is going to be completely set apart to whatever you want to do. What if our prayers looked like that? What if, what if God said, may what you have requested come true today? And what if it were so good that it glorifies God? Because we begin to pray this way. God, if you answer my prayer, I'm going to take that answered request and I'm going to use that to glorify you. So let's fill this out a little bit. If you're praying for a job and you say, God, could you please give me my dream job? Could you please give me the thing that I long for most? And then we say, if you give that to me, here's what I will do. Here's my end of the bargain. I will devote my work life to glorifying you. If you give me the dream job, I will give that dream job to you and your service. I will set it apart to whatever it is that you want to do. As you're, as you're praying, begin to pray in that way. Lord, if you grant me um, physical health, you know, as health is ailing and you say, hey, Lord, I, could you heal me? Could you restore me? Not just so that I could have a long life on earth, but what if I say, God, would you grant physical health so that I could devote the entirety of my life to glorifying you? That's the kind of way that she prays. And so Eli says, may it be as you have requested. Let's ask big things of God and trust that he will do that for his own glory. He says, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you've asked for. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes, verse 18. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and worshiped before the Lord, and then they went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I've asked the Lord for this. Now, um, I remember Walt Kaiser telling me, um, when God remembers something, it's not like he's like, what was I supposed to do today? Oh yeah, Hannah, right? That's not how it works. When it says the Lord remembered her, it means he thought about her and he took action on her account. So, so what's happening here is this incredible change as the promise is coming true, the, the blessing is coming her way, and, and things are changing for her. No longer is she downcast, no longer is she unable to eat with, with a loss of appetite, but now she is able to, because God has declared through Eli that her prayers are going to be answered, she has great faith in God. And now she goes away and she does, you know, she's back to life again. And now she gets this incredible child, Samuel, and she gives him the name, because I have asked the Lord for him. She, she acknowledges this child is an answer to my prayers. May it be that we have many things in our life that we can point to and say, this is an answer to my prayers. I asked the Lord for this, and this is living evidence of God's goodness and his faithfulness on my behalf. Well, Hannah dedicates her child to the Lord. She dedicates Samuel. Look with me at verses 21 and following. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family 
to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I'll take him and present him before the Lord and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Guys, isn't it crazy that she follows through on her word? I mean, it's one thing to say, if you do this, I will dedicate this child to the Lord. I will give this child over to service in your temple. But when you have that child, can you imagine, I mean, those of you that are parents, can you imagine looking at your child and saying, I'm not going to see you very often anymore because I am willing to entrust you to God. That would be a hard thing to do, especially after all of that prayer and waiting. But she says, once this child is weaned, I will take him and I will present him and he will live before the Lord in the temple all the days of his life. Look at verses 24 and following. After he was weaned, she took the little boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli. And she said to Eli, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Here's what she's doing. She is dedicating her child to the service of God. Now, this is a big deal for us. We do this a couple times a year. We dedicate our children to the Lord. And we, we, once in the spring, usually Mother's Day, once in the fall, and we say, guys, this is a big deal for us. We want parents in our church family to recognize that they, they have been entrusted with a child, and the best thing that they can do for that child is to help them know the Lord. And so as a church, we want to rally around families and and help them to do that, and help them to make public vows. Families will come up front, and they'll stand with their kids, and and we'll have them say some things. We're promising that we're going to do this for their sake, and we're going to dedicate our children, and we're not going to, like Hannah, give them totally away, but we're going to do everything that we can to make sure that they are totally devoted to God. And then we as a church, we say, look, we're going to help you too. And we as a church then make vows to them, and we say, look, we will do what we can as a community to come alongside you and support you and help you to raise your child in the Lord because this is such a significant thing. She dedicates her son to the Lord. This child that she had been waiting for, she says, I'm going to give him over to God. Now, I hope that if you're a parent in here, that this inspires you, that when you think about the very best thing that you would want for your kid, that you would fill that in with a devotion to God. There are lots of things in life that you can push your kids toward and you can hope and pray for. I hope they're you know, wealthy and affluent and comfortable and successful and all that stuff. You can be pushing in that direction. But please, friends, let the ambition of their dedication to God be the supreme thing in your heart and in their lives. Let, let, let it be, I want my kid to know and love God all the days of, of their lives. And I hope that as a church, we help you to do that. But let that be the most significant thing that you're aiming at. Hannah dedicates Samuel to the Lord. So she shows us then what it looks like to want to be a parent so badly. And then once receiving that gift of parenthood, she shows us what it looks like to be faithful with that incredible gift of a child. Now we're going to wrap it up here in just a minute, but if you're not a parent and you don't want to be a parent, you might be sitting here thinking, man, this is an 
interesting use of 25 minutes of my time. Um, but let me show you here that this is, this is important for all of us, okay? Because what's happening here is we're not just getting techniques for how to get kids and how to raise kids. I think there are good principles here for us to, to lean into, but I also want you to know that the story of, of this little boy Samuel is a, is a bigger story. It's not just about a woman wanting to have a kid and getting a kid and, and doing that well. It's really a story about this. God cares for his people, and he's going to do what's necessary for their good. If you read the book of 1 Samuel, that's really the storyline that's going on. They're coming out of a season where everybody in Israel is, the, the words that keep getting used, they're doing what is right in their own eyes. That's not good. They are living without reference to God. They're just doing whatever they want, and it's not good. And they begin to become aware of that. We are not living in harmony with our maker. So what are we supposed to do? And in this book, they start to ask, could we, God have, could we please God have a leader? Because we we're a mess. And they begin to ask for a leader. Give us a king. Give us somebody who will protect us and, and keep us and, and guard us from ourselves and help us to know what God wants from us. And, and that the story of 1 Samuel really is the story of God saying, I will give my people what they want. I will give them a leader and it'll be good. And Samuel then grows up, and he actually becomes an incredible prophet of God. And he has the privilege of anointing the first two kings of Israel. Samuel becomes the one who looks at this dude Saul, and he goes, man, you're tall and handsome. You're going to be the king of, of Israel. And what do we find out? Saul wasn't that great of a leader. He's, he becomes a prototype of the kind of leader who doesn't listen to the word of God. And then uh, the rest of Scripture kind of fills that out, and we see all these other leaders who go in the same way as him. They don't listen to the word of God, and they fail to lead the people well. But he has the opportunity to anoint the second king. And the second king is King David. And so Samuel gets to say, this is the Lord's anointed. This is a man after God's own heart. And he becomes such a prominent figure in Scripture that you can't read the Bible without hearing his name over and over and over again. King David is the kind of king that the people of God need. They desperately need somebody who is after God's own heart and will lead them faithfully and help them to know what it looks like to follow God. So the story here is a big story. It's a story that God is at work and he is going to make good on his promises. And the truth is, I can't stand up here with integrity and say, every heart in here that longs to have a child and experiences infertility can receive this answer to prayer. I can't say that. That's not how it works. But I can say this that all the longing that we have for the goodness of God can come true, that God is going to do what is best for his people, that he is going to send a leader who is going to help the people of God experience what it's like to know him, what it's like to live in safety, what it's like to live in harmony with our maker. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a little window into, I'm going to invite the band to come up in just a minute, but I want to tell you one of my passions, and I'll, I'll give you an insight into this in just a moment, one of my passions that I, that I have is I love the Bible, and I love the Old Testament. But one of the things that's really tricky when you love the Bible and you love the Old Testament, how do you help people see Jesus Christ in the, in the Old Testament? As a pastor, this is one of the things that I'm very passionate about. I want people to see our Savior when we read a story about Hannah and Peninnah and Elkanah and these different people, and you go, okay, Jesus isn't anywhere in here. 
Okay, how does he show up? What's the connection here? But Jesus says that the whole Bible is about him. I was, I was talking to my wife, Ash, this morning, and I said, Ash, this, uh, this message is driving me crazy. And I said, it's either going, I'm either going to say this in a way that's clear, and people go, huh, yeah, I see that too. Or I'll lead a lot of people astray. And I just feel that. But that's kind of the, the background to what I'm about to say. The Bible helps us to see God's commitment to his people. And when you read this story, here's what we're seeing. We're being prepared for the fact that God is going to send the very best of leaders in his son, Jesus Christ. And the, the, the thing, the story that we just read about Hannah and her desire to have a child and the fulfillment of that desire, that's not the only time that happens in the Bible. It happens again. It's like, it's like deja vu, almost identical details. And the second time that it happens, it's a woman named Elizabeth, and she has a, a child as well in answer to prayer. And her, her child's name is John. And John is the one who is able to say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John is the one. So God helps us to see he's going to provide a leader. And as great as David was, he's not the one. As great as King David was, he's not the one that the people of God need. Do you know what we need most? We need our King Jesus. And God has been setting us up all along to see he's the one that he's going to send to help us know who God is and what he's like, and what he has done. And when we read the Old Testament, then what do we see? We see echoes of that. It keeps happening over and over again. I said this last week. If you skip movies in the Marvel series, you can watch Endgame. You could probably enjoy Endgame. But if you watch all of them, you will appreciate the nuance of all of these different things, and you will have a greater appreciation then for what happens there. God has an Endgame, and it is the sending of his Son. It is the fact that he loved us enough to send his son. And when we begin to read the Old Testament and see him as the fulfillment of that, it'll help us to worship him even more. So let me pray, and I'll invite the band to come. Why don't you guys stand with me, and I'll pray over you while we stand. Lord, we are obscure, ordinary people, broken people, and we believe that you can still use us. There's hurt and pain in our lives, but that's not the end of the story, God. We thank you that you are a redeemer and that you work in the midst of conflict to, to do beautiful things. Lord, we ask that you would help us to be prayerful people who are crying out before your throne of grace, laying before you the anguish of our souls, the the broken places in our lives, and just being real with you and, and trusting that you can do something about it. God, we pray as a church family that we would do a great job of raising kids up in the Lord, that we would dedicate our young ones to you, and that we would, um, that we would spend time and energy thinking about how to best help them know who you are and what you're all about. Don't let us be lazy on that front, Lord. And God, would you help us to appreciate our Savior, he is, he is here. He's here in his word. He is here in, in our presence. And God, I pray for anyone that doesn't recognize that you sent your son, God, to save us, that this morning that they would make a, a confession of faith, that they would recognize that the best thing that you could do for your people, you've done. You sent your, your son, and he is the best leader. Lord, help all of us to believe in him and trust in him and worship him. We pray in your name. Amen.